Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. And this is Trav. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of going into space and finding out that you left... What was that thing again we've got over at that store, Trav? It was it was like, you know, on sale, and you decided that we were going to trade in our, our fragilator and our decoupling modulator for it? Oh yeah, we're going to need it to leave the planet anyways. Well, I guess we're not. Okay. Welcome to the uh, to Gaming on the Frontier. This week's episode is shipbuilding and ships. Are they important? Are they not important? Are they the heart of the game? Depends on the game, I guess. But we're going to talk about how to make it important and how, if it is important, how to get the most out of it. So I have a, a topic out here called meta, which is basically, you know, uh, what... When you're trying to decide, you know, what sort of things you want to do to improve your ship, you know, when you're, or when you're either initially design, uh, de, uh, designing a ship or when you're upgrading it at later on as, as adventures change and the, the thrust of what you're trying to do may change, you know, depending upon sometimes on the plot itself. It says, what, what do these various subsystems do for you? Okay. So, uh, and, and I, I have a list. I thought we'd just go through it because um, it's much like, um, you know, as I said, much like magic items in D&D is that, you know, you go and you get the magic item because it gives you a, an ability. You know, I think the best magic items, by the way, are ones that are not useful in combat, uh, but have other things that let you do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Oh, like boost so, of teleport and whatnot. Yeah, right. Boost of teleport, mask of breathing underwater, uh, immaterial, being able to turn yourself flat and slide under a door. I mean, anything that lets you do something you otherwise would not be able to do, I think, is a much more a much better magic item than just something that gives you a plus one to your success roll, you know, or gives you a plus one to your defense. Because if you can use the magic item to totally avoid a bad situation, you don't need to have the big gun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it also it's just the fact is that you're, you're, you're increasing your options, you know, geometrically, you know, by adding in things that, that basically allow you to go to a whole different, you know, uh, dimension, literally. So that's why I wanted to talk about these things. Like for example, so for example, one of the things, the systems that you that you probably want to consider is better weapons. Okay, and I said it's always better to be able to not have to run away. So that's always that's a carrot that everybody goes to almost immediately, right? As soon as you get some money and you're or you're if you you you're saying okay, I got X number of dollars, you're going to take a big chunk of it just shove it over on the side that says weaponry right well it's like you know and and my dementia peeps out there oh get this the best defense is a good offense you know who said that mel the cook on alice 
One of many, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you have something valuable on your ship, if you can't defend it, then it, someone's going to take it, right? So weapons seems would, would seem to be a really important thing to have. But, you know, as we'll go through this, you may, you know, people, it's actually still a balancing act. So, and, and that's why, for example, in number two, I said better shields. Because if, you're, if your ship has really good shields, then you could have a swarm of TIE fighters around you firing away at you, you know, and just pew, 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 and then nothing's happening, right? They're not getting through. You can ignore them. If you have good enough shields. Well, again, like the the the, the example that I did about um, Rocket Rangers Attack of the Moon Men from Battlefield Press. The Thessalons, that's what they had was shielding. Nothing could penetrate the shields. The Tharlins would be bombing because they had like coastside cities. And when the Tharlins came, all the Thessalons just hid their cities and dumped, jumped in the ocean. So... If you have shields, yeah, you, you don't need to fight. You can just sit there and wait the battle out. Either, okay, they're going to run out of ammo or they're just going to get tired of fighting because they know they can't hit us and right. maybe go away or maybe we but can try to communicate. Yeah. But you're also not going to be able to take anything from anybody else. I mean, let's say somebody has taken something from you and you chase them down and you come up to their ship and you says, okay, give us our stuff back. And they say, no. And you, you don't have good weapons. You can't make them give you your stuff back. <laughs> They'll fire at you and say, okay, well, we can't hit you and you can't hurt us. So what what now, brown cow? So yeah. Shields usually, as I said, the, Th the Thessalons made the shields, but that's because they were pacifists. They knew we don't want to get into a battle. We just want our, you know, to be protected. That's why they went into shield and cloaking technology to not be seen. And if even if they're still found, they still aren't damaged. So usually if you have shields, it's either out of a sense of self-preservation or what was the other thing I was just going to say? Or you, you have something that you want to keep safe. You're going to do it for defensive purposes you're not into warfare. You just don't want to be hurt. And that, it just that, again, it's a balancing act depending on your, your viewpoint of those who have the ship. Do you want to be the guy with the BFG and just say, I'm the bad boy on the block, which that's never a good idea because there's always somebody bigger. Or do you want to be where you can't touch me, nanner, nanner, boo-boo, and just you go on that, you go down that road as far as how you want to do your ship. Like you said, it's a balancing act. When you're spending your money, because we're assuming you don't have infinite resources. So, you know, either, you know, you're going to upgrade something, you have to decide what you're going to upgrade. Or if you're initially building your ship out, you're going to have to decide where do I want to put all my money? You know, to, to uh, am I going to buy that, you know, that Thessalon uh, uh, shield generator and it's going to take up half the money I want to spend on the ship? Or am I going to buy something cheaper and be able to put something more into something else that maybe I want? And, you know, that's where what, you know, uh, is your ship all purpose or is it purpose built? So, you know, that's, that makes a big difference. So number three was better flight because in almost every case in, 
in any game I've ever played that has starships, being able to get there faster was a good thing. Oh, yeah, especially with, like, games that have massive scope, like Star Wars. You have, what what is it, except for the Unknown Reaches, what, two-thirds of the Star Wars galaxy is populated and they have all the trade and everything going? And it's like, if you're going to have an interstellar culture within a galaxy, better flight is always a better option because that allows you... You're, that's that helps your lifeblood, which is interstellar trade. If right. your flight systems are are top notch, where you can cross, let's say a light year a week. Even then, that's that's pretty good because you know I mean yeah you know most planets are like oh we get our six month supply of this and so those ships they have to have the top engines in order to facilitate trade. And also, better flight as far as warfare. If you've got the most maneuverable fighters in your armada that can just move and stop on a dime, and you know, you're going to win the battle because your fighters are just more maneuverable than the other sides. So, flight mm-hmm. as far as short range and within warfare and long range for matters of trade and diplomacy, you know, that's often a very good system too. And it's often one that a lot of people buy. Just, I want the most agile ship. I don't want anyone to hit me. Okay. But see, also is that if you, uh, if, if you can make a run in half the time as your competitors, you can, even if you're charging the same price, you can make twice the money. Okay. Uh, and of course, if you can make the run in half the time and your customers might say, well, I want my stuff as soon as possible. So I'll take you over my, your co- competitors because I want my stuff there in half the time. If you're trying to chase somebody down, you know, having a faster ship is helpful. Okay. If you are trying to outrun somebody, having a faster ship is especially helpful. So, uh, you know, so in other words, better flight, you know, is almost always helpful. Unless, of course, you're someone who's in a, you know, knockdown, drag out fight where you just basically go in there, stand, every, all, the, all the important action happens after you and the other posing ship are at rest. In which case, flight doesn't matter unless you need to get out of dodge because you picked a fight you couldn't win. Which, which has also happened to me in a number of games where I'm in there, I'm beating the ship, and all of a sudden, three of his buddies show up. I'm like, oh, man, they're creaming me. And I go and I hit the, you know, hit the, the, the boost, and boom, I'm, I'm out of there, and they don't destroy me. You know, when if, if I didn't have good flight, um, I wouldn't have been able to get away, and they would have just kept chasing me and firing at me until they finally eroded my shields down and blew me up. So, yeah, that's, that can make a lot of difference. Okay. Uh, better sensors. If you're in the if you're in the business of finding salvage, you need to be able to find it. The further away you can find it, the less uh, red herrings you're going to go. If you you know if, if you're if you're in a debris field and you can search, you use your sensors to search and find you know stuff. Or if you can penetrate deeper into rocks and find you know valuable minerals that are inside the asteroids because you've got better sensors. Well, that's going to make you more successful, and it's, it means you're going to be able to finish your runs and go back and sell your 
your uh, your ore or whatever it is that you have, uh, because in in, um, uh, in in one book series they collected monopoles, if you know what those are. Yeah. That which is not something that you would nor it's not an ore. <laughs> It's like it's kind of a spatial anomaly that they were able to capture and take take back and sell for a lot of money. So if you're able to detect those things at a distance, then uh, a, a certainly a much bigger distance than your opponents, then that's good. Now, of course, if everyone knows that you've got the best sensors, they they know that any place you go is going to have good stuff, and you're going to have this tag along is coming along with you all the time. So you're gonna might need to have you know also a, a you know better drive better flight so you can fly over there get the stuff and then leave before everyone shows up to uh uh jump your claim yeah exactly it was the words i was thinking of you're trying to yeah okay so better sensors can be really important you know it's uh it also uh you know uh better sensors also includes things like ftl com so you know if you're able to communicate with another star system where everyone else is you know, has to go to big base stations on the planets to do the same thing, then you've got a big tactical advantage or, you know, a monetary advantage because people can tell you things, you know, that's, you know, information that that uh, you might not have or they can, you know, you, you can get ahead of the game in so many ways if you have better communication. And that's also part of better sensors because essentially you're doing the same thing. Things like, oh God, and it's it's like the pinnacle of communication in the OGL D20. Ansibles, where it's like kind of like subspace radio in Star Trek where just, yeah, there's a little bit of lag, but you're able to communicate hundreds of light years away. Now the catch on an Ansible is that it only is is receivable by another Ansible. So it's already, shipbuilding technology has to be in place in order for you to put that other Ansible at the other end. So you could, once you get the two Ansibles, communication's near instantaneous. And okay. you can have an Ansible on board a ship, but in order to communicate with that Ansible, you have to be stationary. You can't be in any type of flight while communicating with another Ansible. That's kind of the trade-off of, yeah, you have instantaneous communication anywhere within, you know, like 100 light years. You have to be absolutely still if you want that ability to have zero lag interstellar cross-galactic communications. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that allows for, once you have it, yeah, you're slaying the game as far as your communication skills because you can get information farther than anybody else. So, right, but but at the same time, maybe you didn't upgrade your flight because you were trying to get this calm. So, yeah, you had this information, but now can you get there in time to act on it? Yeah, I mean, again, if your ship has an Ansible, you know, having the flight, nah, yeah. And there might be somebody out there gunning for your ship because they want that Ansible for themselves. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why they made it as the pinnacle in the in D20 Future. They made that as the pinnacle of communication system that you can get, but it's at PL9. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, we also have uh, better materials. Stronger, lighter, self-repairing, better integrating with other systems able to more efficiently operate, you know, um, uh, absorb uh, energy. Well, I have store energy, absorb energy. I was thinking like, you know, physical shielding, not energy shielding. 
So if it's if, if basically if uh, you know uh, ex things explode and bounce off of it because it's so tough, you know, like you know, uh, adamantite. You know, if you have your ship's shield. Sh hull is well, actually, uh, uh, stay within the science fiction parlance. The um, uh, the puppeteers, their uh, uh, unibody ships, uh, their their general hulls. You know, uh, guaranteed to be completely impervious to anything. You know, everybody wants to buy them because, you know, you, you, you just basically get this thing, you fill it full of all the other things that you need in order for a ship to work, and you never have to worry about anybody uh, firing on you or anything because you can't get through the ship's hull because it's so tough. Yeah, um, here in D20 Future, they have something, and it's PL8. They have no PL9 metals, not, not unless you go to, like, third-party stuff. Nanofluidic. Consisting of a thick layer of gel-like fluid sandwiched in a neutronite structure, nanofluidic armor is quote-unquote smart armor. It concentrates at the point of impact to blunt physical blows and circulates around heat sources to dissipate energy. Now, it slows you down a little from what it says here, but it's got the highest hardness in the game because you start out with PL5 alloy plating at 20, nanofluidic is... 50 hardness. I don't think it's that hard. I think it, it is effectively that hard. It gives you the, the hardness stat in D20 Future. That is for both physical and energy damage. And at 50, yeah, that's the best in the game here from what I see. Barring, I think, any third-party sources, I'd have to look it up. But right, yeah, right. It, there is a caveat to that. Um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. It's minus 500 feet to your tactical speed, and you usually start out at like a base of 3,000. So yeah, if you have the best armor in the game, it's going to cost you. You're a little uh -huh. slower than everybody else. Because the weight is one quarter the weight of the starship rounded down. So yeah, it's... Well, there's a few though that are one quarter, but... Yeah, because Neutronite PL7 is also one quarter. So just having Neutronite armor at all is... Makes it a little heavy. Yeah, weighing about five times more than a similar volume of lead. Okay, yeah. But no, nanofluidic, you were talking about how it absorbs energy. Yeah, right. it, it does because it disperses the heat as well as taking uh, blunt physical damage like from uh, right. concussive missiles and um, they call them in Farscape, frag cannons. Okay. Yeah. The thing about better materials is a lot of times this is one of those things where you don't always see the value of it up front yeah okay because you know you say well i could i could improve my you know heat dispersion by 10 percent, or i could get this really big gun and you know that could you know frag a you know a, a corvette on on the other side and sometimes you have to you know, think a little bit you know lo more longer term and say like well, yeah, but this is going. This better material is means that I'm going to end up saving ten times as much in ship repair costs over the next year, and at which point, at the end of that year, I'll be able to buy that gun just from this cost savings. So, and, and so sometimes you have to take a long view of these kinds of things. Well, if you're if you're going into a business where you're owning a, an asset such as a ship. If you don't have the long-term goal in mind, you shouldn't be owning this ship. If you're just, I want the biggest gun. Why? Well, then it's sort of a, 
how can I put this in in the PG terms that we said? Um, you're comparing things. Yeah, you're 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 comparing things. Yeah, yes. thank you, thank you. Yes, because remember, we you know we do have minors listening to the show here. Bra- bragging rights. You're just doing it for bragging rights. I got you. But yeah, the better materials, if it absorbs energy, and you know you have the ten percent heat dispute, you can use that heat for other things. I mean, I've seen rules that. What was it again? And I'll I'll dispense with where I saw it. But basically, you had this armor that, because you had the heat dispersion, it redirected it into the banks, and it actually, you got like a couple of free charges for your laser weapons if you had this, this heat dispersion metal. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, so it would be kind of a trade-off where, yeah... You're taking laser fire, and in turn, you get a couple free shots, and it doesn't deplete your batteries because you got people firing on you. And it's like, okay, yeah, we're not even going to deplete our sensors taking this guy out. Bam. It's because the enemy was basically fueling you in order to, and they didn't know that there was this trade-off. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that is my favorite thing to happen in games or whatever where the enemy is just like beating down you down, you know, like a redheaded stepchild. And it turns out that you needed all that power in order to power up the ultimate weapon that's going to destroy them all. Yeah, like a Zentradi front cannon that just, it's like a, a mile wide beam, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that wave cannon that's in, you know, in, in all of that Robotech stuff. I mean, that... That thing is just unbelievable. Synchro <laughs> cannon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. You know, but you get, it's uh, you only get to fire it like once. <laughs> All right, so, uh, and, and like other things too that aren't so obvious sometimes, like having a better AI. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that saves on crew complement also. If you have an AI running your ship... Um, and this was something I had in the Palladium game that I ran for a long time, the the Robotech After Dark Day, where they had a ship, and my tech guy, the NPC, cobbled it together where it was all slave systems. And they're like, what do you mean that this ship had a... a uh, Crew complement of 71, and you did it down to 6. And I did it with the rules, so it was all legit. But I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, it's all AI, mini AIs are running each station, and there's Waldos that help you out, and these... AIs take can take the place of like, you know, up to five to ten crew members. So it really helps on crew complement, which means it also really helps on having to load supplies for your ship. If you're only having to feed like ten people as opposed to fifty because you've got AIs running everything else, you just need to make sure you have backup generators so those AIs don't go down. Right. Meanwhile, you don't have to sit there and load up on supplies for such a large crew complement because AIs don't eat, they don't sleep, they don't form unions, you know. They can't form unions. Well, yeah, yeah, but you still, they don't, you don't have to deal with physical requirements such as sure. air, food, sleep. Right, they only need the one. Yeah, they just need, as I said, Power. just the energy to keep going, yeah. Right, right. And and also, if you're in a situation where, you know, you're in, like, warfare and such, where you're losing, you know, crew complement, 
then if the, if the AI can at least perform basic functions that would normally require a crewman, you're able to still remain effective, even though you suffered a great deal of damage and loss. Yeah, the, um, the Friday game, I threw in a ship that the, the, the characters recently found, and it was a sh- and the, the, the thing is kind of, okay, it was out for a while when exploring it had a robot crew. Well, the ship came back, and it was just the robot crew left. The The flesh crew was captured, and the robot crew managed to get the ship back to its home space. And these robots like this, nine times out of ten, they're not all going to be separate robots with their own programming. They're going to be run by an AI that just, these robots are merely its Waldos, its extensions. Right. So, yeah, that's often good if you want just to get the ship out of there. The AI will go to default like, okay, human crew is down to like 3 or 4%. They're injured. We're, what was it that Bill Mummy says, Lanier? Performing the getting the hell out of here maneuver, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's always a good one. Yeah. And, and if you get into like one of those really bad situations where, you know, you're, you're forced to... Uh, travel at sublight it's going to take you 20 years to get to the next place well the the crew can all go into hibernation and let the ai run the ship until you get there which brings us back to passengers right and and of course now i'm reminded of red dwarf with holly yes yes where dave wakes up out of suspended anime everyone and he said everyone is dead dave but he said it four times and each time he emphasized the first, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. <laughs> and of course, because it's three million years in the future, well, the AI had no one to deal with. So, yeah, I've got a 6,000 IQ, but he was still a simpleton just because he went bonkers because he spent three million years trying to get away from populated space. Uh, okay. Just Oh, no. If, if you've seen Red Dwarf, you know how Holly was. Yeah. And, and I always thought it was interesting how she you, you could you could um, you could flirt with her and she'd get all flustered when you did that. Oh, the female Holly, yes. Okay, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying on the view screen she'd get all flustered too. Right, and that's something else that an AI can provide is that if you're a lonely space miner who's trying to maximize your uh, uh, your return on your investment. Well, you know, an AI, you know, can provide you with company. Yeah, at the very least, some type of intellectual stimulation just to, you know, because solitude out in space, you know, that that's part of that space madness, you know. Right. You end up eating soap and thinking it's an ice cream bar like Ren. Um, <laughs> okay. It's, it's the, re- the Ren and Stimpy space episode. Oh, okay. I, I didn't see that, but okay. Of course, the the ultimate in uh, upgrades is where your ship is actually alive. Ah, uh, yes, and here we come back to Moya from Farscape, yes. It, it's biomechanical, but still it was considered a sentient being, mm-hmm. even though it had the biomechanic parts, so it looked metallic, but it was still a living creature. Ah, yes. And of course, there's... Um, there are races that can just grow their ships. In science fantasy, a, a convention I've been seeing, and it's even in, as I said, Aether and Flux Sailing the Traverse by uh, Dark Furies Publishing. You have the Elven Seed ships 
where the elves they'll sit there in this this ship pro, or this seed about the size of a football over the course of like 500 years will grow into this ship that has like you know the concept of solar sails they have this, yeah yeah well they just have these massive leaves and they take on the form of the solar sails and the ship they magically induce sentience into the ship by sort of letting the spirits of previous elven captains merge with the seed ship so when the elven commander gets his new seed ship it's alive because it has the wood railings and the decks and the leaf sails but it also has the essence and experience of previous elven commanders so yeah it's biotech but it's still kind of magical Oh, God, the race in FTL, the biotech wizards, the biotech guy. Krelvin. Krelvin? Oh, and you know that they, they they had biotech. I mean, I don't think Rich really expanded on it. But he you did. know you could probably get a biotech ship from the Krelvin if you, you know, played it right, if you ran it right. Well, the Whirr had their own biotech ships. The Whirr? Oh, God, yeah, that's right. All oh, the little things with, like, the ball inside that rolled them along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since I've done FTL. I might have to actually... Yeah convert that to d20 and throw that at my gamers sometime watch them try to jump the table um right well you know they had similar stuff in incursion so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but alive ships yeah that is well because how moya was she grew each leviathan was unique because they were all di- separate it was a race yeah and Leviathan, you could not map out a Leviathan because each Leviathan grew to accommodate its its passengers. And in the fourth season opener, Crichton Kicks, when Sokozu crashed on board Elac, Crichton was there and she's like, well, I know this and this and this. And she's like, and Crichton's like, ha, no, it isn't. There's no portal on this side. Leviathans grow to accommodate to their passengers and crew and caught her. Because here it was, she was supposed to be this Leviathan expert and it was all scholastic knowledge. She'd never been on one. She could speak Uh. pilot, but Crichton got her with that and she realized, that's when she started realizing that for all of her academic experience, uh, Sokozu, that she didn't get it because that's how the Leviathans were. They yeah. all were different. You could not rely on being on one and say, oh, yeah, you go down this hallway. And no, even hallways would change. You're right. And these pr- and these primitive humans aren't quite as dumb as they look. Right, yeah. That's an ongoing thing in most space sagas is that humans always seem to be the wolflings, you know, and they're, everyone's always underestimating us. Humans are superior. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what what else about living ships? There was another. Well, because I kind of extrapolated because I'm this whole Fessela thing that I've been talking about. I've kind of extrapolated just based on the readings, the writings that um, Battlefield Press did. That yeah, they live in this ocean world. Their cities are made of like ceramics and polymers, which you could make from biotech. I'm extrapolating to the the the, the players that. Maybe, the, and they would have biotech because they've engineered fish in order for them to eat and they grow engineered kelp that because they're PL8, they could grow their own ships. I'm trying to 
push the players, at least throw that bone out there for them. And who knows, a ship, a, a sentient ship made of, like, coral. That could be something different, and it would just have this sentience that would cover for having sensors. It would The ship would just use its own perceptions to pick up on other surrounding things like space anomalies and other crap. Right. I mean, because our, our own spaceships, okay, granted they're not designed to fight other ships and things like that, but um, they only need like five pounds per square inch um, pressure inside them in order to, for humans to breathe and, and live safely inside them. And that only requires basically a thin layer of metal, like aluminum foil literally would be able, you could make a ship out of aluminum foil. And it would, and you'd be able, from the standpoint of being able to breathe, you'd be fine. Oh yeah, so, I remember hearing about that. But yeah, yeah, back in like college. Yeah, okay. Right. So I, I'm saying is, is that ships, uh, a, a race that has been bioengineered or whatever to live in space, isn't that unreasonable? It, you know, that because they, it's not that hard to set up an integument around a ship around a being that's tough enough to handle the fact that it's got vacuum on one side of it. Well, they even brought it up in, in Farscape and the Peacekeeper Wars that with Moya, that when she had to go underwater on, on Kajaga, that pressure was different underwater than it was in space. And so because of the holes that they'd suffered in battle, <laughs> pilot, we got light showers down here because there are all these holes and all of a sudden certain parts of the ship were actually getting flooded because the pressure differential also was not helping, and you're hearing while they're doing the the creaking and the, the moaning of Moya's infrastructure was starting to really get... Right. Well, sure, because because if it's like Earth, okay, at, at, at sea level, the pressure is 14 pounds per square inch, okay? Remember I told you you only need 5 pounds per square inch to keep an atmosphere in? Yeah. Okay, you go down 30 feet, you double... You basically add another atmosphere. Now it's 28 pounds per square inch. Well, it, you know, you, the, the systems that you had that were keeping out, were able to keep the five pounds per square inch in, now are be facing, what is that, uh, like six or seven times uh, the amount of, of pressure than what that it was dealing with just trying to keep the atmosphere inside the ship. So yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense that even going a short distance underwater, Moya might find herself not to be prepared for the onslaught that she was suffering from the pressure of the surrounding water. Well, Leviathans had enough trouble just entering atmosphere. There was the myth that if a Leviathan entered atmosphere, it wouldn't be able to get out just also because of its own weight. A Leviathan, younger Leviathans, from what Pilot had said, would skim the atmosphere and try, that would be a game to see if they could get back up into orbit and not get sucked into the atmosphere. And I think Pilot even mentioned there were some Leviathans that didn't make it. They got too young and cocky and they got pulled to the planet's surface and crashed. Because one uh -huh. of the first episodes they had to land on, um, I, what was it? IET, it was like the third episode where they had to land in the bog to try to muffle the, um, the, the peacekeeper beacon. Okay. Because the bog sort of insulated the sound. So, yeah, they had to deal with all that. But by the end of the series, of course, it's like, yeah, we just land on the planet, land on the water. It's all fine. It's good, you know. 
Never mind we've been through a battle and we were like Swiss cheese. Yeah, go ahead. It's all good. Um, it also <laughs> says here for when you want an enhancement, do you just get a different ship or do you improve the ship you have? Well, the whole thing is if it's alive and let's say either if you get the encoding or you built the ship, you could it, it'd be almost like gene, genetic engineering. You could just program the ship to grow new systems like Moya did. She altered uh -huh. her very innards in order to accommodate Crichton and Aaron and the rest of the crew. Right. And Pilot had to grow his his system to join up with her, her nervous system. Yeah. Well, remember, he was... The pilots, how they were, they were a race that could symbiotically link with the Leviathans. But you were chosen. There was the episode where it was found out that Aaron and the other peacekeepers and Crace forcibly removed the original pilot because he was not being compliant and they put in the pilot that we know. He 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 basically finagled his way on board because of Velarek. And so there was that guilt of I was not chosen. Right. I was forcibly grafted with Moya, so he severed his own link and then they redid it and let it naturally happen over the course of a year. And so with new systems with biotech, I would think, I mean, you could graft mechanical parts. Oh, uh, there was a game that I had and I used, oh, Center Space. And it's done by Fruit Loops. That's the name of the gaming company, but they spell it weird. But basically how they had rules for, yeah, you had these living ships and you could graft hard tech parts to it but you had to make like genetics rolls and mechanics rolls. And if not, it would be like a human body rejecting an artificial part. And it, the skill was um life shaping. If you didn't make your DC 40 life shaping roll, the ship would violently reject it to where, I mean, the ship would get angry because you're sticking this non-natural part in me and you want it to be part and that's not going to happen and you have to try again after i think you get another you have to get another level of experience and like add another rank to the skill and try again so yeah i mean you could try adding hard tech parts but if you're just trying to change and add a new biotech system to a living ship i would think that there are ways to either if the ship was sentient like Moya, it would grow it on its own. Or you'd have to go to a biotech specialist, probably the ship, the ship's creator race, and just say, yeah, just give us uh, what would be. I guess it would be a retrovirus in a way. Where you just, you know, these biotech wizards would sit there and say, okay, we're going to make a retrovirus to genetically engineer to grow better sensors. So it could double the sensors. Okay, fine. So you inject the retrovirus and the ship would have to stay in dock because from what I understand of retroviruses, let's say we humans get genetic engineered. From what I've read, if you get a retrovirus in you, it acts like it's an attack on your immune system. So you end up with symptoms and stuff. Now, depending on the level of genetic engineering, you could either be suffering from a mild cold if it's a light genetic. Let's say I want to change the color of my hair. That's a light genetic alteration, all things considered. I might be in bed for a couple of days like I'm having a bad cold, and then I wake up a couple of days later, I've got blonde hair. For those of you who don't know, I've got brown with 
more than a few smatterings of gray. Um, now, something like Moya, that or like a holy biotech ship, that ship would be in dry dock for weeks because if you're rewriting its genetics to add better sensors, it's going to be down. Because the from what I've seen with a human, if you're doing a massive genetic alteration, let's say you're changing gender. From what I read, it said it's like end-stage AIDS, where you're, but you have to be kept in like a medical coma to survive while your body is trying to accept this massive genetic rewrite. So if you have a biotech ship and you want to add something as massive as like doubling your sensors, your ship is going to be in quote-unquote dry dock for months because the body will be having to regrow um, more sensitive organs in order to pick up things better. Right. Right, it's it's going to have to remap the uh, neural connection. Yes, thank you. Yes, sure. So something because, like that. You know, yeah, it's going to take right. months. That's why I raised the question of saying, you know, how modular should construction be? Do we like just draw the ship we want and then we try to fit parts into it, or do we fit the parts together that we want and we see what our ship looks like afterwards? Because there's that you know the the that function the spacing that it takes is going to drive the design of the ship uh usually in my games because as you know pathfinder is backwards compatible with 3.0 3.5 i just use what i've been using the d20 future stats for making ships now with pathfinder in the book ultimate combat they have vehicle rules some of them are a little similar to the D20 future rules as far as like vehicle combat, especially three-dimensional, like aerospace combat. But um, usually with the, the D20 future rules, it's you put the parts together. You buy all the parts and you make the rolls for if you're building it yourself and you take the time and you get the funds together because it's all wealth checks. And it's you fit the parts together and see how the ship looks afterwards. That's the way I've seen it with them. Yeah. The problem with that is that you're never going to end up with beautiful ships. Well, no, no. I mean, the whole point is you're, you're, you're depending too much on the system. Now, doing it the first way, drawing the ship and then fitting the parts into it, yeah, I, I don't know of a system that... Because, yeah, we know it wasn't FTL. Those ships were not... The, most of the ships that you had access to as a player character, which would be all of the the human ships and the Borcha ships, they were function over form. Usually I saw the NPC ships were the ones that were form over function. They had the smooth flowing lines and they were, excuse me, more rounded. The ships like the Kansas, it was a... Uh, sort of an ovoid front, the bracing that had the elevator car that ran from front to back, and then you had the blocky engine and back. Uh huh. It was definitely more function over form. Depending upon the technologies that you're using, you may be forced to do that because if it comes, it has to be configured this way. It has to look like this because it needs certain kinds of shielding and things like that. And this part has to be within X number of meters of this part. Then, yeah, that's going to do it. On the other hand, if you're using something more along the lines of of uh, nanites, where uh, you have the where it, it basically 
you buy a blo uh, 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 so many cubic feet of nanite that has the programming in it to turn itself into the part that you want, then that that thing could probably fit into whatever shape you needed it to be. Uh, you want you know the whatever way you designed your ship, it might say, well, we need X amount of volume. Okay, well, as long as you have that volume in your ship design, then that part will fit in there, and it'll just adjust itself to fit the shape of the container it's in. Okay, so that's one way of being able to make beautiful ships and still have this modularity going on. You just have to say that the you know the 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 the, the item itself that you are putting into that area is its its shape is fluid. Yeah, I'm sorry. Having a nanotech ship like that, yeah, you mentioned earlier in the list something about a hacking torpedo. Well, yeah, that that's the biggest problem about having a ship that's nothing but nanites is, is that you get a you get somebody who's really good at hacking, and all of a sudden you find yourself floating around with a lot of blobs. Well, also <laughs> the fact that usually nano clouds, and I've noticed this, and that because I'm I'm using nanotech in a, as a thing for a couple of my games. They have a vulnerability to electricity because what's holding them together is electrical fields. So if you sit there and somehow disrupt that electrical flow, the impulses, that's just as bad as a hacking torpedo. You're like, okay, why am I floating in space and I see nothing but mist? You know, just I, that idea of having a nanotech starship is just not... It may sound good. It's like what you mentioned earlier about either having the really big gun or the 10% heat dispersion and everybody thinks the big gun is cool. You got to plan ahead there. You're looking for the long term. You don't want to get hacked and find out that you're free floating in space and, you know, your eyes are bulging. Right. Well, yeah, that's why you might have a few parts in your ship that actually are not nanites. You, know, you might have like an airlock or something, you know. Uh, I mean, that's all part of design. I mean, you're getting the ultimate flexibility by having a ship that's made 90% 90, 90 out of nanites. Okay, because then you can, can if you want more weapon, you get more weapon. If you want more shield, you get more shield. You can, can but can, but nanites still need um, again another convention. Uh, nanites still need mass to change. So that means you're going to sacrifice something. You may have you may want a bigger weapon, but you may end up having to sacrifice something else. Oh yeah, no, there's no, there's definitely going to be trade-offs. Yeah, you have so much mass in your ship, and so you're configuring it to be different things depending upon what you choose, you know. And it's uh, and so yeah, you're you might have to say, well, okay, uh, my propulsion is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to take away mass from the propulsion part of the ship and put it into you know the the bigger gun or bigger shields, which means that now I can't run away very easily. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be trade-offs. But it does give you the ultimate flexibility. Oh. Well, also another convention in nanites is if you want to build something bigger, you have to absorb something so the nanites have building materials. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You go, Absolutely. You, you get into a battle, and you're in an asteroid field. Why is the ship there hiding in, you know, the asteroid field? Uh-oh. It just threw a cannon. And it didn't decrease anything else. Raise shields! <laughs> or the ship's standing next to a whole bunch of asteroids, and you figure, and you say, "Wait a second, sir. We seem to detect some fine filaments going from the ship to all those asteroids." 
and you find out that the asteroids are actually big cannons that they have built out of the the, the nanites have built out of the asteroids. Oh, they turn the asteroids into guns. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And then because they got lots of iron in them and things like oh, that. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And, well, that's the whole point and, of asteroid mining is that they have all these metals in there. Oh. Right. But when the battle's over, you just detach and you just leave these things floating around. You don't take them with you because you're not set up to do that. You haven't made yourself a bigger ship. You've just co-opted some of the materials that are around you. So you basically made yourself a little, you know, fire base that you fire on these people that are sneaking up on your one lone little ship, you know, and then and then but then you have to abandon all that stuff and take off because, you know, it's it, they've served their purpose. The one thing that you want to make sure of, though, is that if you are in that kind of a ship and bad things start to happen and you have to abandon it, you have to make really sure that you grab the maker box because the maker box is what makes the nanites. Yeah, yeah, you're just not having a cloud of nanites. You still have to have that core unit in order to command them all to switch back and forth. Well, not only that, but also to make new nanites to replace the ones that get damaged and such. You know, I mean, with a with a with a properly designed maker box, you would be able to build a ship from the ground up. That's true. It, yeah, it, it might take you a year, but you'd be, you'd finally be able. You basically replace the ship that you lost as long as you had this thing. Well, that's so, right. You just go back to another asteroid field, and you got all the mass that you'll need to build another ship. Yeah, the nanites. Once the nanites are built, they just draw mass from the asteroid field. Boom, you got your ship back. And maybe, because the rules I've seen, nanites work four times faster than humans. That, those are the rules I've seen. That's what I'm using. Okay. If a ship... I don't have any rules like that, but that's fine. I mean, any, any, I mean, whatever, you know, rules that, as long as the rules apply to everything in the universe, then it's fine. It does, you know, it's... Yeah. So let, let's say it takes a year to build the ship. You're building that same ship in three months. A starship, you know, let's say a 100-foot starship in three months. Yeah, they, everybody in the galaxy would want something like that. that. That'd almost be as good as an Enchanty ship. So, yeah, if you take that maker box, yeah, you've got a ship in a, in a fourth of the time. Right. So, you know, so having these, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why these kinds of things might be really, really valuable. You know, most, most ships might be made just with nanites. This is, okay, you, when you need more nanites, you come back to us and we'll give you a booster pack. And then you can add some more nanites to your thing and, and you got the you got the part that does the coordination, but you don't have the part that makes the nanites. You know, that's a trade secret. You keep you, them coming back, yeah. Right, but you get your hands on one of those boxes, now you don't need them, but then, of course, everyone wants to get the box from you. So it's a... So having these really super, super ultra high-tech things always makes you a target because everybody wants what you have. And like the last thing I really had here was, um, can you overdrive a system? You know, do you have some in your game's system, you know, whether it's a video game or whether it's an RPG or whatever, do you have the ability to push a system and l make it do something at a cost? Of course, there should always be a cost. Well, gee, you know, let's uh, see. Let's see here, Scotty. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what. As soon as I saw that, I'm. I'm I don't know it. if the ship can take it. Sir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As soon as I read that number ten on that list, I, I everything was in a, a Scottish brogue. Um, well, yeah, I mean there are rules. I think in D twenty Future Tech about diverting power to add to 
a certain system, but you deprive another system. And I remember we did that in one of the Thursday games I run. It was funny, Goth Bunny was playing the captain of the ship. So I explained the rules to her. She's like, oh yeah, divert from this and this and this. And I said, you do realize you're diverting from that. And they get a shot in. It's like, we have to take that chance. We And she did pretty well, actually, once I explained the rules to her. But yeah, yeah. in D20 Future Tech, there are rules for overdriving a system. And that's just right. due to diverting power. And they do that all the time in Star Trek. Well, yeah. I mean, in Star Trek, they're, they're like, like, you know, divert, you know, lot, uh, you know, uh, you know life, life, life support to the forward shields. Well, they even <laughs> did that in Star Wars. You're diverting from, like, if you're getting chased, they're diverting from the front shields, and they're saying put all the energy in the rear shields. So, right. yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing that all the time. But that's not so much overdriving. Those shields are made to, at one time or another take full power capacity to withstand I mean they have a base setting if yeah. like the shield if the shields are all the way around the ship they're at a quarter capacity all around but if you dump front left and right shields into the rear then it's at 100% capacity and four times stronger than it would normally be that's not so much overdriving Overdriving yeah. would be just where, yeah, you're diverting power and it'll do the job better. But yeah, usually there's a burnout. There's going to be some, there is some consequence because you are expanding this set system for a short time well beyond normal parameters. And anytime you do that, you're overstretched. It's like overclocking a computer. You know full yeah. well you overclock a computer it's going to burn out after a while. Well, it depends on how much you do. But you have to consider when you're doing that, what's that mean, okay? Do I have, you know, do I have a a, uh, a heat uh, elimination process in place to be able to get rid of that extra heat that's going to be generated by that extra um, overclocking that you're doing? Because if you don't, then yes, you are going to... Well, you know, some things are going to happen. Either there's going to be X amount of time and it's going to get too hot and the system itself is going to shut itself down to protect itself, or you're going to get things happening where capacitors start literally popping, the lids start popping off because of the heat is boiling the fluid that might be inside them. So, yeah. I'm thinking on a starship. Wait a minute, did we just blow a fuse? Did we just blow a fuse? Why do we have fuses on board a starship? <laughs> In incursion, that's exactly what they did. You got hit with something that the shielding couldn't take. They diverted the energy into one of those uh, black or white boxes and blew it to, and blew it apart. Oh, oh man, yeah. And that cost a lot of money to get those replaced if you could even find them. I mean, black box is not so bad. You can replace those. But man, you lose a white box and everyone's like, you know, everyone hates you after that. It's like, you lost a white box? Because they were totally irreplaceable. Yeah, the white boxes were made to be... And that's why they had redundant white boxes. The black boxes were made by, and let me get this right, the Bazell, and they were maintained by the Greebles. And yeah, they served the same function as the white... They served the same function, but they weren't as tough. Right, it was nanotech, and you open it up, and it's got the nano... You pull the part out, it's dripping with nano goo and everything, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I didn't know that there was like an overdrive in those that you could blow a white box. I didn't know that. Oh. Well, it's 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 like when when a system would catastrophically fail, you could divert the energy somewhere else so that, you know, it wouldn't destroy the ship for example or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's at least one there's one example in there they talk about um, in the original book. Uh, in a lot of things, you could do that. Now, a, a very common practice by engineers is is that they 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 produce a product, okay, and they want to make sure that they can sell this product. So they have to know it's reliable. So usually what they do is that they, they design a product so that it could basically be overdriven like 50%, even 100%. And they'll basically just run 100% more power through it, see if it fails. If it doesn't fail, then they know for sure it's going to be stable at half that, that rate. So a lot of times when you're overdriving, what you're doing is, is you're running it up to the limit that the engineers originally you know, designed into the system so that it would be reliable over time. Ah. And that's when Scotty's pulling this stuff off a lot of times. It's like he knows how much the system can really take. When, he's, when he says things like, I didn't know she could take it, sir. He knows. <laughs> he knows exactly how much it can take. And he's trying to get as close as possible to that red line without going over it so he can save the ship. Well, remember, he ratted himself out to Jordy. Yes, he sure did. In in and I'm blanking the name. It wasn't generations. It was. It was. It wasn't generations. Yeah, it was. No, it wasn't generations. It was. It was next gen. It was. A, it was the next. It was the yeah. episode where they found him in the transporter loop, and he's telling Jordy, "You always make your repair time four times longer than it's supposed to be." Then you come off as a miracle worker. And Jordy's like, I don't want to come off as that. That's not how I do things. I just tell my captain the truth, okay? How about that? Why don't we do that? <laughs> how are you supposed to maintain your reputation as a miracle worker? Yeah. Yes, yes. I laughed so hard when I saw that. And then I read the novelization. And it's just like it was right back to the way it was. Yeah. And, and, and you almost feel like you're a fundamental tenet has been trashed. I know. I, I, I didn't like it because I did I because it, it makes him seem a little sleazy and, and self-serving. Yeah, right. Yeah. But at the same time, this is it, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I mean, maybe by keeping expectations low, that means he can also buy, you know, he, they, they over, he basically he can, he can justify buying the better parts. Well, I, you know, we need to be able to produce this amount of power reliably, so I'm going to need, you know, the X2 version, sir. So we're going to have to put it into the budget. Okay, so I, if you say so. You know, I can show you the math if you need to, sir. All right, I believe you. But in the meantime, he's getting, he knows that when the chips are down, he can get four times the power out of this thing because it, it, it didn't need that much to begin with. Well, yeah, the thing with Scotty, remember, he spent his spare time all he did on his spare time was constantly pour over all the tech manuals for his ship. He yes. knew the ship better than anybody else. Therefore, he knew all the shortcuts, all the, the workarounds to make right, this right. ship perform stuff that a Constitution class would not normally be able to do. Right. Exactly, yeah. And and he, ha he had the breadth of knowledge to be able to know where you could make a shortcut. Sure. Yeah, but anyways, uh, so like, so like these, these are the options. Is that you know, does if you do overdrive it, does nothing happen? Does as in like the it was engineered into the system to allow you to do that? You just didn't know until you did it, okay? Or does it cause a does it 
cause a spectacular failure, you know, and, uh, and and you basically it shuts down and you're dead in space, or or something just doesn't work until you get it fixed again, or does it just simply mean that you're going to have an expense? Uh, you're going to have an expensive repair that's going to be need to be done before it can be deemed reliable anymore. The, the okay. conventions I usually see, and I remember we did this with the Star Trek campaign, or not the Star, the Star Wars campaign, where I had three people from a pre-hyperflight culture, Jen Matthews, Colleen, and Josie, and Josie ended up being the navigator because she, you, you in in Pathfinder, you use knowledge geography for navigation. And she was a quote-unquote ranger. Therefore, oh, I know star charts. Yeah, okay. And I made it where, okay, she learned how to navigate through astro-navigation. Fine. And Josie kept messing up navigation checks. Well, in Star Wars, I used the D20 rolls. If you messed up an astro-navigation roll and you misjumped, there are yeah. times that you blew out the hyperdrive. Uh -huh. Josie did that three times in the campaign. Nice. And, and so nice. it was just... <laughs> I hear now, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. <laughs> uh, Kylie, you had one job and all of us around the table. One job. <laughs> After a while, I think that's why Josie didn't want to play a character anymore because she just got sick and tired of us busting her chops. But yeah, in the Star Wars D20 rules, if you misnavigated and you rolled on the jump table, often you burned out the hyperdrive, which meant you had to replace it. Right. And if you were stuck in a bad part of space, mm, yeah, because these three characters came from a, a a highly regressed world that got back up to, like, Renaissance-level tech. Mm -hmm. And there were pieces of the spare-sparing culture from, like, you know, the Tales of the Jedi era, but these characters had not found it yet. So... Yeah, most likely I have that convention. If you overdrive a component for some reason, either you do so intentionally or due to a mishap like Josie's ranger turned astrogator, there's go there has to be a consequence. There it, it you're overpushing it in such an immediate way that yeah, it's going to blow past the known parameters and shut down at the very least or fry the component at the very most, right. then you would need the expensive maintenance cost to either cobble together, you know, like cobble together uh, unused systems of the ship to rig up a one-shot to get it back and going again. Right. Or you just have to buy a whole new one. If you're, if it's a misjump or you're in a bad part of space and you don't have it, you have a new home. <laughs> But yeah, I do right. remember those rules from the Star the Star Wars D twenty second edition. Right, and and be, in in D twenty usually there's going to be some kind of a saving throw too. So that's where you're like, well, we lucked out. It, it, there's no harm. Like a fortitude save for objects. Right, right, and so yeah, okay, we overdrove it. It worked okay, but that doesn't. But because we did that, we're still going to have to do our, you know, our. 30 million light year maintenance at 15 million light year <laughs> because you know it's just we, we can't take the the risk of long-term failure oh crap know? we voided the warranty with this work oh yeah we voided the warranty i can just see it now you know the the the, the guy on, on jurassic park you know <laughs> coming up on, 
on the monitors on the control panels when you do that saying you violated your warranty <laughs> oh yeah no because i know nothing oh that about would be that so being, annoying i i know nothing about that being the automotive after and just aftermarket yeah <clears throat> yeah about <laughs> voiding your warranty um yeah but no i i i see that that just from a role-playing standpoint, you would want that as a consequence. It's like, yeah, okay, you're going to pull off this incredible stunt, but there is a good chance that you're going to make some damage to your ship that you're going to have to pay the piper later. Yeah, at least you're going to have to have some kind of a diagnostic run, and that's going to cost you something just to make sure that nothing got damaged. Well, I mean, that, yeah, that's bare minimum. That's like if yeah. you roll really low on the mishap chart. Right. But if you roll high, yeah, I, I still say there should be consequence for overdriving a ship's system in order to do something. Okay, so you're saying that no matter what, something else should suffer. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, it... There's no level of degrees. It's just simply that... If you overdrive a system, then something has to break, at least in some way. Right, and I mean, if you are good, you can cobble something together from other ship's system. It's like, yeah, we may not have a ship's computer in the kitchen anymore, but we got communications back up, you know. That's right. Something like that, yeah. you know, the AI for the, the, the kitchen. Yeah, it's done. We all have to make our own meals now. We don't have the food replicator anymore. But hey, we can call right. home again, you know. Yes. That's yeah, at the it, very it, least. <laughs> yeah, the ship systems will only make s'mores now. Well, that uh, you know. <laughs> after the after the hundredth s'more, but trust me, you're not going to want it anymore. <laughs> oh well, if you get back home, you can just get a new food replicator. There you. Go. Well, yeah, yeah, but in the meantime, in the meantime, you know. But yeah, I. I... All your food comes out green. <laughs> It's perfectly safe, but but psychologically, your mind's going, this is going to kill me if I eat it. Yeah. Um, I would see that, and, and I noticed how you did that, that in gradation, do you luck out, no harm occurs, expensive maintenance, breakdown, cause the ship to blow up. Um, and yeah, even the Star Wars D20 astrogation mishap, it was the lower you rolled, the less of a problem it was. And when I told Josie after she failed the astrogation check, get out your percentile dice, and just and it was when she was still up here, just had that look like. And I'll use the 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 farscape parlance, throw me running. Just <laughs> just she had that look like, damn it. <laughs> yeah, that last one I was kind of thinking about where you're trying to like do a, a a warp jump in a gravity well, and you're not supposed to be able to do that, so you do it anyways because otherwise you're going to die because you're being surrounded by the, the the enemy fleet, and so yeah, you jump and then you and 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 you literally arrive as a smoking heap, and you just have time to get off, you know, uh, get out into your lifeboats before your ship goes critical and blows up, but you've escaped. Yeah. So, you know, you're, it's, it's good. You know, now, now all you have to do is try to, try to justify it to the insurance company so you can get enough money to go and build yourself a new ship. Yeah, exactly. Um, Unless, of course, you've got the super high quality one where you grab that maker box before you got off the ship and you have to take a year to build your ship again. Yeah. But no, I think a gradiated chart like that would be something good when you have that massive type of mishap where you overdrive a system either intentionally or accidentally, like an astrogation 
failed role. Just right. it would be good. And I mean, as I said, when Josie she rolled them percentiles, you know, it was that patented pixie kind of flinch, you know, just <laughs> It's a good thing she doesn't I'll, listen to these episodes. I'll take your word for it. Oh yeah, it was great. Just like you know, she'd wince as soon as them dice hit the table, she'd look away and then look back and tell me the number. She could be like, Low's good, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we love Pixie. We do, um, but yeah, I I just just for the purposes of the role playing, because you could spawn a whole another adventure. Let's say you want to, you know, upgrade your space campaign, and you have the overdrive system. You overdrive the system, and it fails. Well, you're now stuck in this new part of space, and you have all new races you can explore. You're looking to get, you know, kind of like a Voyager campaign. Where sure, you're there sure. at the opposite end of the galaxy and you're trying to make your way home on other ways and you're trying to find shortcuts and you meet new alien races and all that. So you could really right, right. boost your campaign with, you know, an overdriven system complication. Right. Well, it's, yeah, you've created a game changer. And it's important because a lot of times when you have this thing where you're slowly upgrading your system and you're putting all this love and, and attention into all these subsystems and everything like that, you get so invested in the ship that you have that you're not willing to make the jump to, let's say, a better system, a better ship, you know, another way of configuring the ship because you've got so much invested that you'd have to literally be ripping out half the ship in order to do it. So if by the plot, it, you know, you end up losing that, all that anyways, then that's a golden opportunity for you to go and say, all right, well, considering where we are now, maybe this is the way our ship should be now. Well, yeah, the whole thing in the beginning here where you said, if it's just used to go place to place, then it's a it it it's a prop, it's a plot right. device. Now, if you're putting all this love into the ship, if you, well, what's the whole thing with with hyper things? If you can't stat it, you can't kill it. Well, if you're putting the stats into this ship because you know you need these stats in order to be able to monitor what systems you're adding and removing, the ship itself becomes a character. It's a GMPC. Uh-huh. Now, even if it's not an AI-driven ship, the characters know that this ship has stats. This ship has abilities it can do. And the agency that the players have, they're the ones running the ship that allows this, allows it to do, you know, fire the weapons and get us out of here and, you know, sense, you know, scan the planet for life forms and all that. It does become a character in its own way. Right. But just like in D&D, you know, the paladin gets his... uh his war horse at fourth level. And, and and you literally have to will have to pry that war horse out of his cold dead fingers. Okay. <laughs> because he loves that. But if you don't do but if that doesn't happen, then he'll never get on that 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 uh Pegasus. All right. He'll never get that granted to him by the gods because he's so invested in the previous version you know that he he's always trying to eke a little bit more out of that 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 that, that destrier he's got. He's gonna put the boots the the horseshoes of speed on it. He's gonna put the plus five chain mail on it. You know he's gonna do all these different things to make that horse you know the best it could possibly be. And but maybe it's time to upgrade to like I say the uh, the Pegasus that comes with natural armor class plus ten that has the ability to fly four times the speed that an Earth bound 
creature would have. I mean, but you can't get there if you can't let go of the earlier version. So there's that too. You can get too invested uh, in these things. Even with like, you know, in, in the Kelvin timeline, they're now on the Enterprise 1A because the Enterprise got destroyed by um, Crawl in the Swarm <laughs> in, in Star Trek Beyond. I know, I know, but it is... The, the the story of the movies is that every movie the Enterprise gets destroyed. Well, that broke my heart when I first started watching those movies, but I got over it finally. Oh yeah, when yeah, you know, like when Kirk blew it up to, you know, take out those Klingons and everything, and just yeah, and 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 yeah, you do get another ship, but well, that also depends on you know. Like you said, calling the insurance company and hoping that you get another ship. Or in the case, working for an organization like Starfleet, okay, the ship was destroyed. How? Well, you see... <laughs> we saved the galaxy. Give me another ship. Yeah, exactly. You kind of <laughs> owe me. You want me to do it again, I'm going to need another ship. This time, add these things to it. Yeah. I always feel bad about the captain of the other ship that they basically take and rebrand as an Enterprise. And he basically gets booted off the ship. <laughs> they don't ever talk about those captains. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because there's only so many of them, you know. He might get the next one, the next nice shiny one that comes out of the pike. But, you know, you get invested in those ships, and they make you they give it to somebody else, and you're like, oh, but it was, it's not really the Enterprise. It's the, it's the you know, uh, you know, the constellation, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the Excelsior with the the, the transwarp drive that Scotty plugged yeah, in the plumbing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was supposed know. to be the next best thing. Yeah, the next. Yeah, they stole it from Sulu, wasn't it? Wasn't it supposed to be Sulu's ship? No, he got it afterwards. Okay, I'm just saying though. You know, it's like <laughs> there some of those char some of the long-standing characters got screwed over a couple of times because Kirk decided to destroy his current version of the Enterprise. Oh yeah. I, All right. I, with 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 starships, though, yeah, I do notice that that in a way, and there's even rules to make, and it's a third party um, D20 thing. Lewis Porter Games made it. It was called Weapons of Starship Destruction, and it gave more supplementary rules to the D20 future starship rules that I mentioned earlier. And they had uh, a part of it. Where was it? Legendary starships. Yeah, here it is. You basically. Uh, how can we do this? Have a crew with the quality of expert or better. Have a captain with a charisma bonus of at least plus three. Have all players on board agree to donate 10% of their future earnings rewards directly to the ship. And then create a unique design or symbol which clearly identifies a starship. And I guess the starship gains levels. And you it gains bonuses to defense and base attack bonus. Starship feats can be chosen. Um, that sounds cool. And yeah, I mean, some of these are beat to quarters. And you have to have the Star Dancer prerequisite. A starship gains plus four to the pilot's dexterity modifier. Or, what's another one? Okay, Star Dancer. What, uh, starship gains plus two to the pilot dex modifier. And then it's a prerequisite for the other one. They had, um... Evasive action. It's capable of avoiding incoming fire. Again, Star Dancer is the prerequisite. 
During your action, you designate an opponent, receive a plus two bonus to defense against attacks from that opponent. You may new you may select a new opponent on any action. That just sounds like a starship version of the dodge feat. It is. Yeah. So, but they have all these things that if you deem your starship legendary, and they use the Enterprise, the White Star, and the Millennium Falcon as examples. Um, yeah. Just ones that pop up in culture. But yeah, the this makes that whole thing of the starship becoming a character even more so. And as I said, once you put stats on a starship where you don't make it just a plot device, I, I think nine times out of ten, it becomes a GMPC. And you, the players, you know, they help support it. They keep it going. And what did, what did uh, the very old Dr. McCoy say to Data? You take care of the Enterprise, she'll bring you home. That's right. Yep. Right after he said, I don't see no points on yours, boy. You sure you're not Vulcan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite line is off is out of... Um... Galaxy Quest. I'm, I'm coming and I'm uh, and I'm, I'm going to destroy you. And he says, "With what? Your your measly little laser? You know that I? You know, uh, you know, you're you're barely able to come this way." He says, "I'm I'm not coming toward you slowly because my uh, because my starship engines are, are are damaged. I'm coming slowly because I'm dragging mines." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, go jump to warp, jump to warp, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Sorry, folks, if you haven't watched Galaxy Quest, that was a spoiler, but go ahead and watch it anyways, because it's just worth it. <laughs> that's like the very uh, long dude, that's like, like making jokes about, you know, Kennedy getting shot. It there's no too soon now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everyone who's listening can see that building your ships, you know, using a effective and uh, I don't want to use the word complete because you can always get too detailed uh, on these kinds of things. Uh, but using a, a, a system for building ships and making your ships an integral part of, of your adventures, just the same way if you were doing a fantasy or something, the magic items, the various things, you know, the ship should be the same way. It should have a lot of flexibility in how it's put together. Uh, one system should affect another. Uh, you should be able to upgrade. You should be able to uh, uh, decide whether or not you needed to go to a, a different ship in order to get what you want or whether you can enhance the existing ship. All these things in a really, in a good mature space and uh, RPG, I think is, is really important. And there's lots of different ways of doing it. Like we said, uh, and, uh, but, and we tried to touch on as many as we could, but we really think, I really think this is a great idea to do uh, to really enhance your adventures so that your ship, you know, your, you, that your ship is, as Crab put, another character in the actual game. That it, it may be an NPC, okay, uh, but it's still just as important. And, and the interactions between you and your ship and the economies of the world in your ship can make your gameplay that much better than it has been before. So we want you to do this. Uh, if you do do this, we hope that you'll let us know how, how these things enhanced your play and any great stories from the table that you might have experienced. So please put that on to uh, fans of the uh, gaming on the frontier. 
on our uh, Facebook and any of the other places, especially uh, on our uh, Podbean site. And please go to, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, go to iTunes and give us a, a review because I don't think we've had any there for a while. And it's always good to let people know that we, that we exist considering that we were on our like 440th episode at this point. So thanks a lot for listening to us. Uh, if you got some ideas of your own you want to share with us, please put them on our, our various groups and we'll be sure to add it to our campaigns and we'll have more for you next week. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.